thanks a lot for checking in and welcome to the Hustle Mindset Show. My name is Veer Dosi and I am your host. In this podcast, I interview brilliant people such as CEOs, change makers, thought leaders and moonshot thinkers among many others and learn about their mindset and strategies. I am an aspiring 16-year-old polymath working on increasing my specific knowledge and building upon myself while creating cool stuff. I interview about hustling, upskilling and personal growth and development. I'll also talk about ways to increase your skill set, work out stuff and ultimately hustle your way to a more fulfilling life. If this is something interesting, be sure to follow and subscribe and stay tuned for new releases. Until next time, stay happy, stay healthy and keep working on improving yourself. Hey everyone, welcome to the Hustle Mindset show. Today on the podcast we have Alex Brogan and Alex uh, is the person who is an ardent lover of mental models and uh, living life perfectly according to a given rule or something. So Alex, how about we start with an introduction? Absolutely. Yeah, thanks uh, Thanks for having me there. Love love what you're doing uh, here and it's, it's great to be with you. Um, so yeah, my name is Alex. I'm uh, Australian. I'm 24 years old. Um, I studied um, a, a Bachelor of Commerce um, in, in Finance and Accounting initially and uh, went into the world of investment banking for a couple of, couple of years, um, but ultimately realised that wasn't what I wanted to do forever um, and it became really clear uh, that I was interested in you know, technology and um, I guess more <clears throat> just a wider spread of ideas that uh, weren't so kind of focused in, in the finance realm. Um, and so last year I um, left investment banking and had quite a exploratory year um, where I tried a, a, a bunch of different things, um, really just to see what I was going to enjoy doing most. Um, and ultimately that led to... Um, a bit of work within Web3, um, launching NFT projects um, with with some close friends, um, and it also led to a, a job at a, a growth marketing agency. Um, and I, I guess I went into that <clears throat> knowing that you know I was quite um, keen to to stay within the technology space and, and startups was my interest, and so it was really about uh, building a a more technical skill set that I could use, um, you know, within startups and, and growth marketing is, is definitely one of those skill sets. So uh, that's that kind of career side of it. And I guess on the side, um, the mental models have been an interest for me for probably three or four years. Um, and I've really been wanting to do this, uh, I guess, um, learning that I'm doing now with, with the Twitter for, for that period of time. Um, and found that, you know, the posting to Twitter and having that extra motivation to, um, to help other people learn them as well was something that was a bit of a forcing function for me to, to start sharing them. Uh, and so it's been a lot of fun. Uh, there's, there's lots of mental models to, to go and a lot of learning, but, um, yeah, I'm really enjoy- enjoying the journey so far. Yeah, that was great. Uh, well, Alex, welcome to the podcast. So to get started, uh, the primary question that I'd like to ask is the top three mental models that are always on the top of your mind. Like, 
if you have a decision to make or a problem then you always uh, refer to one of them yeah it's a great uh, question yeah and i think i <clears throat> would slightly uh, reframe it as you know what what are the three or four models that have been most impactful for me in, in my life um, and there's actually probably four of them um, rather than three um, and the first one would be uh, which you may well have heard of um, the Bezos regret minimization framework and what this framework says essentially is that when you're making a decision you should project forward to your 80 year old self uh, and imagine that they're making the decision for you uh, and that you should make the decision that will leave your 80 year old self with the least amount of regret and <clears throat> this has been uh, particularly impactful for me uh, i think when i you know was working in in finance and um you know knew within my intuition that i probably didn't want to stay there it was one of the models that i used to really start to uh, rationalize that that decision and, and make um, make action on that decision um, and one that can be um, coupled with that uh, really really closely um, is a concept called inversion and what inversion is essentially um, is asking the question what is the end state that I want when solving this problem or undertaking this endeavor uh, and in the case of my career, you know, what that looked like was, okay, if I project forward 20 or 30 or 40 years, what do I want my career to look like? What do I uh, want to avoid on that journey? Um, how am I going to make sure that I'm as happy as possible and fulfilled? And if I'm as happy and fulfilled as possible, then there's a good chance that whatever I'm doing, I'm going to do a lot better at that thing because I, I have the motivation uh, and interest in doing it. Uh, and so coupling those two together was, was really, really helpful um, for me in a career sense, but also, you know, with, with inversion in particular, I think, you know, this can be applied to, to so many different areas. Uh, for example, if you ask yourself uh, on a... On a personal finance level, you know, what is the end state that you want to avoid? The end state that you want to avoid is financial ruin, bankruptcy, all of these things. And then you can ask, okay, to avoid that, what do I need to, uh, what do I need to avoid? Uh, and things like, you know, avoiding, avoiding debt, avoiding overspending, um, avoiding uh, putting all your eggs in one basket, they come to the floor. And this is just a, a micro example of the types of um, types of problems you can solve and really cut through very very quickly uh, with with inversion. Um, and so I think it's it's most helpful for focusing on the few things that that really really matter, as opposed to all of the uh, all of the different things that you could add in to try and you know get to that end state. Um, so it really gives you, you clarity, uh, it gives you the 80-20 on, on what's most, most important. So a couple of others, um, one which is again related to inversion in a way, um, at least in the 80-20 in the sense and, and the focus sense, 
is, is a model called decomplication. And what decomplication is essentially is um, a model which tries to reduce uh, what's called artificial complexity. Uh, and artificial complexity is essentially any way that humans will try and make something more complicated than it needs to be. Uh, a great example is in health and fitness, where there's thousands and thousands of people, you know, who have created businesses uh, selling different uh, solutions to problems in health and fitness. There's different advice that says one thing um, <laughs> and other advice that says another thing. And it's really, really hard to cut through the noise of, okay, what actually matters here and what should I be focusing on? And so the question which decomplication asks is, am I making this harder than it needs to be? Um, what is the simplest possible way to achieve this goal that I want to achieve? Uh, and in the case of health and fitness, you know, instead of uh, thinking about all of these really complicated things that you could add in, whether it's, um, you know, really rigid meal plans and eating at a specific time of day and counting your calories and exercising for this many minutes on this day and this many minutes on the next day and taking these supplements and so on and so forth. It's saying, okay, the simplest equation to losing weight, right, is uh, intaking less calories than you're, um, than you're exerting. Um, and so a simple way to do that is to eat less, um, to ensure that your intake is lower and to exert more. Uh, so your outtake is, is, is higher. Um, and so it's just really trying to boil these, these types of problems down to the most impactful uh, kind of solutions that, that are actually there. Um, and that applies to basically anything that you're doing. And what it really helps with is just making forward progress um, on these types of problems and not getting stuck in all of the weeds and, and the things that uh, can trip you up along the way. So that's those three models. And one more uh, which really resonates with me as well is the anti-fragility model. Uh, and this is a model which was popularized um, by Nassim Taleb. And what it was, uh, was essentially an attempt to understand, you know, what is the opposite of something that is fragile? And he sought to answer that question and postulated a number of different words um, that could suffice to, to answer that, um, such as, you know, robust or, or sturdy or these types of things. But those words have the connotation of uh, they, re they re retain their strength, right? Um, but if you think about fragility, it's something that breaks and gets weaker. And so anti-fragility is the opposite of that. So when something is broken down, it is actually remade stronger than it was previously before. And I think uh, this can be applied in, in so many different areas, um, but is most important just to have as a general mindset um, for, for life. And um, I've definitely found it to be a really, really effective model in, in approaching things like career and approaching um, 
approaching exercise and fitness where you know that you've got to you've got to break your muscles down um, to build them up stronger or in a career you've got to put yourself in an environment where you know you're going to you're going to be fragile and you're going to get broken down but you're actually going to come back a lot stronger than you were previously before uh, and there's many more examples but it's a great mindset to have and a great um, kind of model to take take with you and just to be able to repeat to yourself in those moments and to say kind of, you know, this is an opportunity to be anti-fragile and I'm going to take it um, because where it leads is is quite an exciting place. Uh, so that would be the four that uh, I've probably lent on in the last uh, one or two years, uh, most in particular here. This was awesome. I especially like the day complication one. I've heard of the other three, but the part where you give the example of health and fitness, that was like really nice. So uh, the next question that I'd like to ask is, uh, how do you apply mental models effectively and how the map is not the terrain itself? Yeah, absolutely. So I'll start with the, the second part of that question, which I think is a little bit easier to answer. Uh, and that is that uh, the map is not the territory. And what this means essentially is that no scientific model, no mental model is ever a perfect representation of reality. And therefore, it can't be relied upon completely um, for making decisions in a, um, in a kind of complete way in a I'm only going to lean on this model and not take in any other perspectives way um, and so what that <clears throat> what that means is that you know models are a very helpful um, decision-making tool but it's important to know when to apply them um, and how you can apply them in, in, in various situations and this is by far the most difficult uh, component of applying mental models um, and if you listen to someone or read someone like Charlie Munger for example he spent a lifetime trying to master how to apply mental models and he'll readily admit that it's a process he's still trying to work out and and still trying to, to master and so the simple answer I think is that um, it, it, takes, it takes a lifetime of, of experience and wisdom and reflection um, to start to learn how to apply these mental models. And I think it's only when a model um, is reinforced in your own life uh, and you can really see the benefit of that model that you can lean on that again in the future. Um, and so I guess the, the first step in learning how to apply them is being aware of the models and at least reflecting on how you made your decisions, what was important, uh, what you would have done differently if you had the chance again. Um, and so that's kind of a, a longer answer, Veer, but what I, what I would say is that as far as a, a practical way of starting to apply these mental models, it is first, you know, having uh, a list of models um, that you've heard of or that you've found um, that resonate with you um, and, and starting to build decision checklists, you know, for the various areas of your life. 
Um, so for example, um, and I'll add that <clears throat> what that allows you to do is to surface those models and ensure that you're relying on them um, when they're going to be relevant and when they're going to be helpful. And so what that would look like is you know, having a list of models, having them segmented by what area of your life you think they could apply. Um, so for example, as I mentioned, in the career um, field, that would be thinking about regret minimization or inversion as potentially the two key models. Uh, and then you go to uh, a field like <clears throat> investing. And in investing, it's all about um, containing your emotions. So in a, for your uh, inv investing decisions, you'd want to have you know, readily available all of the key biases um, that can affect your decision making, such as confirmation bias or availability bias, um, commitment bias, whatever it is. The list there, and when you're going through this um, you know, decision-making process for an investment, actually go through each model and, and tick them off uh, to ensure that you're, you're not um, falling kind of victim to those biases. Uh, and then there's many more examples, but hopefully that gives a bit of a sense for how you can practically start to integrate them in your life, um, because obviously it's very hard to do that. Uh, it's very hard to rely on them without having an actual checklist in front of you if you haven't, you know, spent your lifetime uh, with them learning them. So yeah, that would be that would be my idea, sir. This was really great, and I especially like that point when you said the. Uh, you make checklists for different things. So, have you made one yourself? Like, do you follow a particular guideline or something? Have I made a checklist before for decisions? Absolutely. Yeah. Um, in particular, in particular, my career and uh, and investing um, decisions as well. It's it's essentially. Um, yeah, do, doing kind of the things I just mentioned. So, you know, figuring out, well, I'll start with career, figuring out what are the things that you value most. Uh, so there's lots of things that go into a fulfilling and, and interesting career. Uh, they can include, you know, working with like-minded, uh, interesting, talented people. It can include having freedom and autonomy in your role. Uh, and being able to exercise that consistently. It can include uh, financial uh, remuneration, absolutely. Uh, it can include you know, the company that you're working for and, and their values, um, all of these types of things. Uh, and then it's starting to um, kind of go through them with the opportunities that are in front of you and ensuring that you know, you're a you're a ultimate decision aligns with what your key values are um, and that's that's really the most important thing and I think then uh, whatever decisions you're making you can cross-reference that with the kind of key models of you know inversion or uh, or um, regret minimization uh, which I mentioned before um, to ensure that that decision is going to leave you happy you know, in the long term. So yeah, there's no, there's no real, uh, you know, secret source to it. I think it's just having the key models that you think are going to be relevant to your decision in front of you, 
uh, and then thinking through them uh, as you make those decisions. Right. So uh, related to this, have you ever created a mental model on your own, like from your past 24 years of experience? Have you uh, and the experience that you've gained from reading on mental models? Have you thought of creating your own mental model? Have I thought of creating my own mental model? Oh, that's a great question. Oh, I haven't. But you know what? I think anyone can create or anyone can create a mental model and, and people have. Um, and what's important to be able to do that is uh, I see it as two parts. One is experience on the one hand. So actually having you know a life event happen or something interesting happen, and then adding in reflection on that uh, experience that happens. And with that, you can overlay, okay, what are the core lessons that I could apply that would allow me to navigate this situation in the future in a, in a more effective way? Uh, so a long way of answering your question, but no, I haven't, I haven't created my own mental model yet, but uh, maybe I will be up. Maybe I will after this uh, podcast. <laughs> yeah, perfect. I'd really love to hear that. And you talked about a fulfilling career. So what do you think is the difference between being happy in life and being fulfilled in life? That's a great question. Um, how I think about it is... Happiness to me is more of a moment-to-moment -moment reality, whereas fulfillment is the feeling that you have in your gut and intuition that what you're doing is going to leave you feeling content over a long period of time. And... I think what that comes down to is living in accordance with your values and, and what, you, what you hold in the highest regard. Um, and obviously, with, with that, it, it's about exactly that. Firstly, being aware of what your values are, um, but then having the courage to actually go in and live by them uh, and, and live them out every single day. And that, that is shown in you know, your career and, and how you think about that. It's shown in your relationships and how you treat them and it's shown in how you, you know, look after yourself, look after your health and fitness, etc. cetera. Um, and so that's more of a holistic picture, whereas I think the happiness part, for me at least, is uh, a, a kind of definition that, you know, really resonated with me a number of years ago is, um, at any one moment, your happiness is a comparison of your subjective reality to your objective expectations, right? And so your subjective reality is, uh, sorry, your subjective expectations are what, what you think you need to be happy, essentially, whereas your objective reality is what your life is actually at that moment in time. Uh, and so if you think about happiness as uh, your subjective expectations 
exceeding your objective reality, then that is a uh, you know a potential definition of of what it means to be happy in any one moment. And if you take that a, f- a step further and say, okay, um, there's two elements to this equation. One is my objective reality, and one is my subjective expectations. Then, at any one point in time, you can uh, make changes to either side of that uh, equation. And so, if your subjective reality, uh, sorry, if your sub- subjective expectations, um, you want to adjust them, then there's exercises such as you know uh, gratitude, where instead of having this uh, really high expectation or unrealistic expectation of what you want your reality to be like in that moment in time, you can actually take a step back and say, okay, why don't I be grateful for what I have um, and not focus on what I don't have instead, right? Um, And there's a really good uh, kind of phrase that sums this up, which is uh, wanting what you have is as good as having what you want. Uh, and so with, with desire, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a um, double-edged sword in the sense that it can leave you in a state of lacking uh, rather than in a state of abundance and a state of contentment with your current, uh, with your current kind of phase in, in where you're at in your life. So that's that component, um, which I think is, a lot easier to adjust and which is where the focus should be um, for anyone who's trying to get happy in, in a point in time um, because, yeah, it's it's just so easy to always be in a state of lacking, especially in our uh, society, how it is today. And, you know, all of these success stories are so um, visible to all of us and it's very easy to feel like you're behind other people or behind where you should be that's just not a not a helpful uh, frame of mind to be in Um, and I think before you can really really focus on your career and achievement you need to get to a stage where you're happy in yourself at that moment in time because when you're happy people want to people want to help you people want to be around with you um, and you're going to be a lot more effective and, and able to achieve your goals. So that's that subjective um, expectations component. And the objective reality is obviously, uh, you know, working harder, achieving more. If you're the type of person who likes to achieve things, then that's probably going to make you, it's going to give you those moments of happiness. Um, but it certainly isn't lasting, lasting, you know, happiness or fulfillment. And it's a trap as well in the sense that if you're that type of person who relies on achievement and only achievement for happiness, then you're going to be left on a, a essentially a hamster wheel for your whole life chasing that, which is always um, a few steps ahead of you. So those would be my thoughts on, on how to be happier and uh, how I kind of define happier and, and fulfillment. So this was this was actually a new thought that I learned from you. I've not heard, I've not thought of happiness from this perspective before, that the objective and subjective reality. So this was awesome. And moving away from this, uh, 
since you uh, have accumulated these mental models, have you ever thought of releasing an ebook or sort of thing on this that combines all of them into a single document? Hmm. I want to, sorry, Via, uh, before I answer this question, I want to actually uh, add in a couple of things to that um, previous previous question of yours, which is how to be happier. And I think there are some, you know, really, really simple things that you just must be to give, must be doing to, to give yourself the best chance of, of being happy moment to moment and, and feeling good about yourself. Um, and these are things such as uh, limiting your uh, alcohol consumption, getting enough sleep, exercising regularly, taking care of you know, any, um, any subconscious uh, thoughts that you have that continually reoccur and whether they're self-limiting beliefs or previous you know, psychological trauma or whatever it is, um, trying your very best and in some cases uh, for some people it's it's an impossible task but um, there's there's definitely uh, a lot of merit in, in trying and uh, in ensuring that you know you're putting in the time and attention to dealing with those things because if you don't they'll always always keep reoccurring in your life and you'll never quite deal with them and they'll always hold you back um, and the last two would be, uh, and this wasn't in any particular order, um, maintaining close connections with your, your friends and family, being, being open and, and vulnerable, uh, which is definitely for young males not <laughs> as easier of a task. Um, and I think you know, definitely something that I've had to work on a lot over the course, but I'm starting to get a lot, a lot better at. Uh, and the last thing would be uh, watching, just stop watching uh, the news if you can. I think the news is something uh, which, um, how to put this, you can very easily go without and I think you'll find your mind to be a lot less uh, infected is is one way of putting it. So, um, yeah, I'd, I'd, I'd say all of those things are, are paramount. And... So the question you asked um, following that, have I considered writing a book? Uh, simple answer, yes. I think it's something I'd, uh, I'd like to do eventually and, and would think about doing. Um, but for now, you know, my focus is, is really on, on growing my audience on, on Twitter and I'm really enjoying that. I'm meeting a lot of great people and, and having a lot of fun. Uh, and then, you know, towards the end of end of this year, or it might be a few months, I'll, I'll probably start thinking about that more seriously and um, putting my attention to it. Yeah, so that's that's interesting. I'd really love to read that. So another question. Oh, thank you. I've got, I've got one. I've got one true fan. So that's a uh, that's a good start, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Great. Right. Right. Got that. So another question. Uh, I suppose you've heard of the term polymath. Yes, absolutely. Right. So since you've shared a lot of content on learning and learning techniques, uh, how do you become a polymath? 
Oh, that is a great question. I think hard to answer, uh, not being a polymath myself, but I'll, I'll give it my, I'll give it my, my best go, um, based on, on the information that I have. I think becoming a polymath is, is again, uh, a lifelong exercise that, that you undertake. Um, and for those, for those that aren't, uh, I guess, familiar <clears throat> with the term polymath, what that, what that means essentially is being an expert in uh, numerous areas, usually I think more than, more than three or four different areas. Um, and so, yeah, there are many, many examples of, of people like this over the, over the course of history, um, you know, such as uh, Benjamin Franklin, who was, you know, a writer, um, he was uh, in politics as well. Um, he was a, an inventor. He was a businessman. All of these different types of things. And so I think if you look at <clears throat> the people that have become polymaths, uh, what they have is a number of things. The first of which would be a profound curiosity for learning um, and developing themselves in these areas. The second would be an ability to focus, uh, limit distractions, and to spend their time whilst they are learning in each of these areas solely on that area. Uh, while cutting out all of the peripheral noise and, and other things that they could be doing. So curiosity, focus. With those two, then I think it's reading, uh, or obviously it's, it's reading and engaging with material uh, that is going to allow you um, to become an expert in in each of those areas um, and I think one way of <clears throat> one really important way of filtering that information that you're uh, you're taking in is rather than preferencing very surface level material um, or shallow material um, uh, you know that that could be things on Twitter which aren't a deep dive or it could be, um, you know, articles or, or short, shorter articles, um, et cetera. It's preferencing, uh, you know, longer, longer form material that you can really engage with and, and learn the whole subject matter. But uh, more importantly than that, it's engaging with the material that has uh, – lasted the test of time within each of these uh, within each of these fields because what you find is that you know the uh, I guess seminal pieces the uh, pieces of, of work within a field that have been the foundation for all of the subsequent pieces are typically the ones where the ideas are expressed um, you know in the most concise and, and fundamental way and uh, if they've lasted, um, you know, 50 years, there's an interesting effect called the Lindy effect, which is that you know, for non-perishable items, um, their expected lifespan will generally be equal to 
the number of years that they've already been in existence. And so what that means is that anything that has already lasted uh, a great deal of time will likely last uh, a, lot, a lot longer in time as well. And so it's preferencing those types of materials. Um, and then there's all sorts of, I guess, uh, additions you can make into that process, which, um, which would really extend this question a lot, that some of the things would be, um, you know, project-based learning. So whatever it is that you're learning, um, ensuring that you're actually uh, exercising the skills or the knowledge that you're taking in because, you know, all theory and no practice isn't going to lead to the type of learning and development that uh, ends in being a polymath. I think it's testing your, your knowledge uh, and checking your knowledge with existing experts uh, in the field of which you're, you're looking to engage with. Um, and another, to finish this uh, answer, another highly effective uh, method um, would be immersive learning. And what immersive learning is, is creating an environment to practice the skill or knowledge that you would like to learn that forces you to exercise that skill or knowledge uh, to a great extent. An example of that would be you're wanting to learn a new language uh, and so you go to the country of which the language you're wanting to learn and immerse yourself in that culture and don't allow yourself to speak any other language aside from the language you're wanting to learn. Uh, and that is a way, uh, there's a, a concept called um, directness in learning. And what that means is creating an environment uh, of your practice, which is very, very transferable to uh, where, or where or how you act, actually be executing that skill. And immersive learning uh, reduces the uh, friction between um, those two things and makes it a lot more uh, direct as far as the learning goes. So, yeah, there, there's numerous uh, kind of techniques, but hopefully that's a good a good flavour for for the types of things that you can you can think about. Right, this was a good starting point for becoming a polymath. And if I had to ask you, like, who are your ideals or who are your invisible mentors that you often look for for advice? Oh, yeah, that's a really good question as well. Yeah, there's been <clears throat> there's been many uh, over the course of the last you know six years or so for me. Uh, I'd say. Uh, initially, I <clears throat> relied on and consumed a lot of uh, Tim Ferriss's work. Um, and Tim Ferriss, uh, who you may or may not have, may, may or may not know of, is uh, an American uh, podcaster now that has been an investor, an entrepreneur himself. He's an author. He's done a whole range of, of really, really interesting things over his course. And what I really resonated with him on was his pragmatism uh, for how he approached things and his focus on effective, effectiveness um, on, you know, principles like the Pareto principle, 
which is focusing on the 20% of inputs, which will result in 80% of the outputs. Um, he was probably the person to, to introduce me to that concept and, and many other concepts, which have, which have uh, definitely resonated with me and I've, I've held on to for a long time. Uh, through Tim, I was introduced to a number of other extremely interesting people, uh, one of which being Naval Ravikant, who has a, uh, a cult following now um, around the world. Um, he's, he's known and I think admired by yeah, a, lo a lot of people, particularly uh, you know, in the young male kind of 17 to uh, you know, late 20s demographic. And uh, I'm certainly no different. I'm, I'm uh, a big fan of Naval's and he has helped crystallize a lot of the thoughts that I had um, around, uh, you know, things like career and things like health and fitness, things like relationships. So he's been an extremely valuable uh, lever to me as well. I'd say those those are the two uh, two core ones for me. Right, and uh, do you read a lot of books? I try to. Yes. Yep. Right. So, uh, how do you get, like uh, learn from autobiographies? Like, I don't understand the point of autobiographies because they kind of like the uh, person is just introducing how his life went. So how do you learn from that? Mm. Yeah, it's a good question. Via, uh, I think what I would say is. Autobiographies in particular have um, the core goal of teaching you how to think as opposed to what to think. And how that works is essentially, you know, you're able to observe someone over the course of their life and the types of problems they encounter the types of events they're involved with and how they thought about those problems uh, at that point in time. And I think that is uh, an extremely valuable type of learning to get because ultimately, you know, our life, our life is a, a series of, uh, a series of events that happen to us. Um, and, if you're able to speed up that process of learning by reflecting on other people's lives and how they approach these uh, approach these events that happened to them and problems they encountered, then that can rapidly uh, extend your learning and and speed it up. So that's really valuable. I think it's it's also valuable when you can get inside the mind of, of someone else and, and really, really understand, you know, the types of thoughts they had and whether they had self-limiting beliefs and all of these types of things, which I think can serve to uh, reinforce or give you confidence that these type of people aren't actually so different to yourself, but what they had 
was an ability to quell those self-limiting beliefs or uh, kind of character uh, detriments that they had and achieve their success regardless. So I think um, they can serve a number of a number of different purposes in that sense. Right. So this was good. I like that point when you said uh, you learn from autobiographies because they're essentially events and those events can happen with your life too. So you uh, like know have an example of how to deal better with them. So another question: I have watched your journey from. 800 or 900 something followers to 21 point something thousand followers today so uh, how did this journey pan out for you like uh, how did you build such a such an audience on twitter by sharing content yeah it has been a, a journey uh, yeah absolutely it's been a lot of fun a lot of uh, a lot of work as well um, i like to say to to people that you know, building an audience on, on Twitter is basically a, a part-time job. Uh, you've got to be really engaged uh, and there's a number of different things that you have to keep on top of. Uh, obviously, there's the, the content creation component, um, but then there's actually engaging with people on the, on the platform as well and, and trying to meet new people. And so that takes a lot of time um, all up, but... What I would say with Twitter is that uh, in, a, in a growth marketing uh, sense, you've obviously got all these different types of marketing um, that you have. And what Twitter is known as is what's called a persistence channel. And what that means is if you are willing uh, and do spend the time on the platform, engaging, posting content consistently, then almost without fail, no risks, no questions asked, you will grow. Um, and that is just the nature of the platform um, because the algorithm um, essentially rewards those people with more, uh, more impressions uh, who are posting consistently and who are posting content that people engage with highly um, and so if you're able to do those two things uh, it's really a recipe for um, for being able to grow uh, over kind of any any period of time and the important thing I think is just getting to the point uh, where you are willing and able to put in the time because it does it does take a lot of time uh, and you have to be willing to to pay the price of uh, of that kind of exercise to to achieve audience growth. Um, and there's a number of uh, kind of different smaller tactics in and around there, but I'd say more than anything, those are the the things that that people should should really think about and uh, and remember if they're if they're wanting to do the same. Persistence and value. Right, right, got that. So I think that wraps it up. I, I have asked you most of the questions that I had. It was really interesting to talk to you. And yeah. 
Amazing. No, thank you for having me uh, on here. It was lots of fun and I love the, the podcast that you're building and you asked some really, really good questions. So I can't wait to, to see what you know the next few years holds for you as well. Right. Thanks a lot. So thank you to all the people who have checked in and uh, for this episode. Thanks a lot. And let us meet in the next episode. Bye.